Hi, it's Dr. Janet Pope here at Room Now, live in San Diego at hashtag ACR23. I'd like to talk to you about tick twos. And the tick twos aren't ticking me off at all. They seem like really great oral drugs. There's a couple things I want to talk about. So there was a, a late breaking poster, poster L12, and it looked at a new tick two. It was TAK hyphen. 279. And what that tick 2 showed was compared to placebo and active psoriatic arthritis, it had the same improvement of PASI about 50%, got an ACR, a PASI 75. It had about the same improvements of the other tick 2 on the outcomes for psoriatic arthritis, like ACR responses. So the question that I have is two questions. Number one, do we need another tick 2? Number two, where would we put it? And number three, which one would we use? And I think it brings up one other question, and Dr. Conway has talked about it on, on Twitter, actually. And the question is, should we be doing placebo-controlled trials or giving a standard of care in patients with active disease? So if there was a trial of one tick 2 versus another, it would have to be a very large trial to even show non-inferiority. But maybe we should allow standard of care. So I think the take-home message is we've got another tick two and phase two look pretty good. If phase three does, we'll have another one on the market for psoriatic arthritis. Maybe they'll extend into other things like lupus. But one of my comments, a commentary on lots of clinical trials, well-designed trials, but should we have an active comparator instead? So please follow me at Room Now, uh, Janet Burdo, and have a great day. Thank you. Hello everyone, I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting for Room Now virtually from ACR 2023. I'm here today to talk to you about Abstract 840, which was presented at uh, Sunday's ORA Oral Abstract session. This was by Feng Zheng et al. Um, it was a head-to-head -head comparison of TLL018 and tofacitinib in patients with active rheumatoid arthritis. It's a phase two uh, randomized control trial. So TLL018, um, is a new agent. It is a combination JAK1 and TIC2 inhibitor. We'd already seen some of this data presented earlier this year at Jular, um, where it caused uh, quite a commotion. Um, so as I said, this was a phase two randomized controlled trial comparing this new drug to tofacitinib in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Study was based in China. It enrolled 101 uh, patients. It was for an initial 12-week uh, duration with a 12-week uh, follow-up period. It looked at three different doses of this novel agent, either uh, 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams, or 30 milligrams BD. Um, mostly, I'm, I'm going to focus on the higher dose because that had the most uh, positive um, outcomes. And really, to some extent, these were earth-shattering. Um, so we've had so many drugs for rheumatoid arthritis. And the very, very strange thing is that they all seem to come out at around the same numbers in the randomized control trials. There's not very much to differentiate all these agents, despite the fact that they work in very, very different ways. And even when we've done head-to-head -head trials, there may be very, very small differences, but, but nothing huge. This study, however, did show something huge. So ACR50 response rates at 12 weeks 72% for TLL018 versus 42% for tofacitinib. So an enormous difference. The other new thing we see in the data now is that there was an escape arm in this study. So the patients who were on tofacitinib after 12 weeks, they could switch over to this uh, TLL018. They did that at the 20 milligram dose. 
And of those patients, 83% of them reached 80 or 50 after a further 12 weeks. So this is really, really surprising data to me. This agent looks like a miracle drug. It looks better than anything we've ever seen before. There are no real extra safety signals seen either, so, so nothing on that count. This is either going to go one or one of two ways, isn't it? This gonna if this holds up in the phase three trials, this is gonna revolutionize our treatment in rheumatoid arthritis. This is gonna be the go-to drug. It's probably gonna be the first agent used. It's definitely gonna be the first advanced therapy used. On the other hand, we've seen promising phase two results before, and it may be that uh, all this falls down and this drug uh, comes out looking more similar to our existing agents. We don't know what's going to happen. We'll need to wait for the phase three data. I am going to put my nickel down and say, I don't think it's going to work out. I think it's going to come down looking the same as everything we've had previously at the end of the day. And that this data is just some sort of blip or fluke. But time will tell. Um, I'm Richard Conway. Follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. And remember to tune into Room Now for all the updates from ACR 2023. Hi. Dr. Artie Kavanaugh, coming to you for Room Now from ACR Convergence 2023. Big meeting, lots of posters, lots of interesting information. There's one abstract, as happens sometimes, that really gets your interest, and uh, there, yet there's some things that you still want to see more fleshed out about. This is 294, and the abstract is about the impact of tofacitinib treatment on skeletal muscle in rheumatoid arthritis. So one of the things that we've noticed with our jackanibs is that when we treat patients and we monitor laboratory values, we see an increase in CPK. And that doesn't necessarily seem to be pathologic, and we don't see weakness, we don't see frank myositis. So what do we do with that? Well, this is an interesting study, small number, it was the, called the RAMRUS study, open label, single center, um, 15 patients who had at least one other risk factor for muscle weakness, sarcopenia, which is a big problem, uh, inanition, wasting, bad things which lead to frailty in patients with RA. What they did was measure muscles. And they did that by looking at MRI before and after treatment. And what they found out is that it did seem that the JAK inhibitor therapy, in this case it was with tofacitinib, may have had an anabolic effect on muscle, which might explain the high CPK, insofar as that some muscles seem to be larger as a course of treatment. And there's a molecular rationale that could explain that. So I think with the specific therapies that we have, they, they do target things that we understand, but how the body interacts in these complex cascades, we don't know. So I think that these data are intriguing, and I'd certainly love to see a follow-up with further analysis into it. So for Room Now, this is Dr. Artie Cavan coming to you from ACR Convergence 23.3 in San Diego. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope here at Room Now Live at ACR San Diego, which is just a lovely place to have a convention. I wanted to talk to you about one of the plenaries. It's near and dear to my heart because it's a Canadian study, but it isn't as near and dear because I don't do point-of-care ultrasound. So this is the plenary abstract number 0726. And it was a very well-designed study for the curriculum for musculoskeletal bare minimum criteria of comp 
competence for rheumatology trainees or PGY45s. And there was um, a lot of consensus, but there were a lot of point-of-care ultrasound experts that participated. It seemed like in the Q&A there wasn't a patient that participated. That would be great, maybe in the future. And mostly they were experts, so the experts had a consensus. A couple things that they wanted were competency of small joints of hands and feet. They didn't have competency of the knee. Uh, the a presenter was asked about that, and some of it might be very well because we can examine the knee pretty easily, but that's not what the answer was. She said maybe starting with small joints would be easier. However, what I've done is a room now poll, and I hope that you'll participate, but so far I've said, do you think there should be a minimum competency in POCUS, point-of-care ultrasound, and there's leaning towards yes, but a little bit of no with hocus-pocus, so we'll see over time. Anyway, follow us here in San Diego at Room Now. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Yus Yusuf. Uh, I'm from Leeds. Uh, so I'm reporting for Room Now uh, in sunny San Diego. Uh, today, uh, we would like uh, to discuss uh, uh, an abstract uh, about uh, an impressive result uh, in the field of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, so this, the abstract number is 0840. Uh, as we all know, we have many therapies now uh, in the treatment of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, however, in clinical trials, there could be none or maybe a small number of uh, therapies that could achieve a higher uh, hurdle endpoint such as ACR50. Therefore, this is quite an impressive result that we have from a phase two studies uh, of a compound which combine uh, JAK1 and TIC2 inhibitor uh, uh, named uh, as uh, TLL018, uh, which is a study in China. So I'm here joined uh, by the uh, chief Inve investigator, Dr. Liang. Hello, Dr. Liang. Hi, Joseph. Yeah. Uh, how are you? Good. Good. Uh, Thank, you. Thank you for joining us uh, in room now. We appreciate it. Okay. Thank you for, for having me. Uh, would you like to uh, give a little bit of background about your study and your objectives? Okay, yeah, so uh, this is a study of uh, TLL018, which is a highly selective dual TIC2 JAK1 inhibitor. Uh, so we compare head-to-head to, -head to tofacitinib. We want to see if uh, it can perform better than a JAK alone uh, inhibitor. So this is a phase two study, randomized, head-to-head uh, uh, -head, uh, comparison study. Mm -hmm. And um, so can you please tell me the, the design a little bit, just to summarize it? Yeah, so the, de the design is, uh, uh, we studied in the, uh, the patient population is, is uh, uh, CD mass uh, intolerant of resistant patients. Um, and uh, we use uh, ACR50 as the primary endpoint. Another interesting feature of the design is after 12 weeks of treatment, those who didn't achieve ACR50, they changed uh, the treatment. So the TOFA, uh, the patient on tofacitinib, they were changed to our middle dose. So we want to see if our middle dose can overcome the resistance to tofacitinib. So I'm just interested a little bit more about the patient population. So majority of them are metatrexate, uh, refractory. Uh, do, do you have any uh, patients who had a previous biological exposure and including a, a JAK inhibitor? Yes, yes, uh, we do. Actually, uh, besides metatrexate, uh, um, uh, about 30% of the patients received a prior JAK inhibitors and about 50% of the patients received a prior biologic. 
And would you like to summarize your top line results uh, of this trial? Yes. Um, so uh, in our trial, uh, tofacitinib had uh, an ACR50 rate of uh, uh, 41% by week 12. Uh, compared to that, uh, our middle dose uh, had an ACR50 rate of 65%. So it's much higher than tofacitinib, which is statistical significance. Mm. And uh, how about those people who did not meet, uh, you know, the people treated with tofacitinib who did not meet the ACR, who were then, uh, you know, randomized to your drug, how did they fare? They did very well, very well, actually. Um, out of 12 patients who, uh, uh, who were on tofacitinib didn't reach ACR50 and changed to our uh, middle dose, by week 24, so in other words, another 12 weeks of treatment, uh, 10 of the 12 achieved ACR50 or higher. Mm. So it's a very high percentage. Yeah, it's very impressive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, clinical efficacy is one thing, but uh, all our audience also wants to know about safety. So uh, can you just, just tell me, was there any uh, safety concern from this uh, phase two uh, size uh, study? No, no, no safety concerns. Uh, among the, all the four cohorts, uh, including tofacitinib, uh, all the four cohorts have similar safety profile. So uh, our low, middle, high dose groups all have the same, uh, very similar pro safety profile. So in other words, uh, higher dose didn't cause more uh, uh, AEs. So I think this is really, uh, you know, uh, a cause for opti optimism, you know, for us. So what we want to know is what is your next step in terms of development of this therapy? Yeah, so we, uh, we started a phase three trial in, in arthritis uh, in China, and uh, we are conducting uh, a phase two trial in psoriasis in the United States. And we finished a phase two trial uh, in psoriasis in China, and also in chronic uh, spontaneous urticaria in, in China. Yeah. And do you envisage that at some point, very, very soon, that you're going to go global in the trial? Yeah, hopefully uh, we'll find a, uh, have a partner to uh, do a multinational uh, uh, trial. Uh, that, that takes a lot of resources which you know, we, we right now don't have. And my last question is pertaining to the current phase two trial that is running in China. Um, which dose that do, that do you do you go for? Which was the middle dose? The middle dose, right? Yes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Brilliant, right? Uh, so thank you so much uh, for your time, and uh, so thank you uh, for listening to our interview. Uh, I hope uh, you find it very useful and informative. Uh, so something you know, a compound that you know we will well, uh, closely monitor for the future, uh, and you can follow uh, uh, Room Now for more uh, coverage. Uh, uh, for the ACR content. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow from Northern Virginia, reporting live for Room Now from ACR 2023. Um, as we're wrapping up day one here of ACR, I uh, really wanted to point out one uh, really interesting abstract where uh, the worlds of, I think, technology and and rheumatology really uh, intersect. And this was abstract uh, 0530. And this focused on the impact of upadacitinib as measured by a, a wearable medical device focusing on physical activity in patients with ankylosing spondylitis from the SELECT-ACCESS-2 trial. So that was kind of a mouthful, but pretty much what they did is 
that looked at over uh, 400 patients with uh, either an inadequate response or intolerance to biologics. And they were randomized to receive either upadacitinib uh, 15 milligrams daily, daily or placebo. Pretty much they slapped on either, it was called a, a medical grade wrist worn device, which is think, you know, Apple watch or um, Fitbit and whatnot for about 14 weeks. And they noticed that at 14 weeks, patients treated with upadacitinib had a numerical improvement in steps per day with about 11% improvement compared to placebo. Notably, in patients with a sedentary lifestyle at baseline, a 22% improvement was observed in the upadacitinib group compared to 4% in the placebo group. In patients with an active lifestyle at baseline, numerically better maintenance of daily step counts were maintained compared to placebo, where they found that sometimes the step counts declined over time. I think overall, this data is what we expected. You know, we expect that when we make patients feel better, they're going to move more. But I think a few points I wanted to point out are, one, it's good to have actual data, you know, how much more. Uh, and if we can quantify that by steps and the improvement of physical activity and movement. I can see that maybe even being used as a measurement marker in future studies. And I think, you know, we also have way more data now from these smart watches or smart devices. You know, I think Fitbit really was a hot thing, I want to say about a decade ago. You know, I, I looked at my Apple Watch this morning and I noticed there's just so much more data than just steps climbed. Um, you know, quick look, I saw there's obviously stairs climbed, um, there's METs even, there's walking speed, um, walking step length, heart rate, of course walking asymmetry. They can kind of tell you which side you're leaning on more. Um, I think that's also very interesting for our diseases. Calories burned and even more data that we don't even know how to use yet. Um, I think these devices, you know, we know they're always collecting data in the background, whether we know it or like it. Um, many people have them and there could be even years of data, um, including prior diagnosis and prior drug use that we haven't tapped into yet. So I think very promising initial study focusing on uh, these smart devices and our diseases. I hope to see more in the future and maybe even at this ACR. Uh, but thank you for tuning in to Room Now for live coverage of ACR 2023. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter. Oh, I guess it's called X. X. Follow me on x.com at Dr. RBC. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting virtually for Room Now from ACR 2023. I'm here to talk to you today about Abstract 1582. This was presented at um, Monday's plenary session uh, number two. It was by Bryant England and colleagues. It was non-TNF inhibitor biologic or TSD MARDs versus TNF inhibitors in rheumatoid arthritis ILD. So the reason uh, this study has come about is that there has been this previous suggestion that TNF inhibitors are associated with increased mortality um, in patients with RAILD. There are a number of studies hinting at this. The main one was a BSR registry study, which compared TNF inhibitors to rituximab, um, showing worse outcomes with TNF inhibitors. Really, to many of us, this never really made mechanistic sense. TNF inhibitors are a fantastic drug for almost every other aspect of rheumatoid disease, among other conditions. They have not been associated with uh, lung disease in a de novo fashion uh, commonly at all. And why would they worsen this aspect of rheumatoid disease when potentially helping all other ones? 
So this is my favorite abstract uh, probably from this meeting. It is such a smart study, um, very important clinical findings and presented in a really, really nice way uh, today as well. So this is a target trial emulation. Um, it was um, using a new user propensity score matched uh, design. It was based in the VA. So there's some caveats with that. So as you'd expect, this was largely male, 92%, largely older patients with a mean age of 68 years. And they compared uh, non-TNF biologic or TSD marts to TNF inhibitors in patients who had ILD. They enrolled 474 patients in this study. The non-TNF inhibitor patients, 53% of them were rituximab and 28% were on abatacept. And this is important because these are the two agents we favor in RILD. We think these are our best two agents. And 80% of the patients being compared to TNF inhibitors were on one of these two drugs. Findings. So there was an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.22 for respiratory-related hospitalization for favoring the TNF inhibitors. There was no difference in all-cause or respiratory mortality. So this has a ratio of 1.22. It's not st statistically significantly different. I mean, people could argue that the 22% uh, potential increase, that is clinically important. It's within the error range of the study. But even if that is true, it comes down to the TNF inhibitor side. So really, I, I think this study largely exonerates TNF inhibitors from their, their previously suggested role in worsening outcomes in oral ILD. I'm not sure it quite says that they should be the first line agent. I don't think it'll change my practice to start initiating TNF inhibitors preferentially in patients with ILD. But I think what it will say is if somebody's on a TNF inhibitor and they happen to have ILD uh, coincidentally, I'm not going to be switching them off the TNF inhibitor to give them a different agent because this data really says that there is no need to do that. Remember to follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway and check out Room Now for all the coverage from ACR 2023. Hey everyone, Jack Cush, Janet Pope. We're here at ACR 23 in San Diego. We were just talking and thought, let's stop talking and put this on uh, Room Now. And the discussion goes something like, what about that oral surveillance study? You know, it really was an eye-opener. It did change a lot of the practice habits. It changed regulatory rules and whatnot. And the question is, how impactful is this into your practice. And when we do surveys of people, ask people to raise their hands, a healthy number, you know, not quite the majority of people say they're using less of these drugs and whatnot. But what we were talking about is since that study, the oral surveillance, also known as the 1133 study, the safety study done to show that um, JAK inhibitors were, uh, when given to high-risk individuals, increase the odds of, of coronary events like MACE events and also certain malignancies when compared to those who got treated with a TNF inhibitor. And, and so again, all these changes. But since that happened, there are a bunch of studies that have ensued. What do we call these? I call them um, apology studies. You call them? I, I would call them cohorts enriched. I would call them probably uh, data mining and databases, administrative databases, which we do do. Right. And so why do these studies show up trying to compare what they do to what was done in oral surveillance? So uh, explain to the audience 
what's what we're seeing so like one is a abstract later on today it's a 1632 the rabbit registry talking about cancers and they're looking at their cohort of patients treated with biologics and then they do a selected cohort meaning it's modeled after that high risk oral surveillance cohort and then there are other studies like what that have done the same well there's the star ra where it was a whole bunch of administrative databases put together and what it showed in the regular group uh, a jack versus a tnf it showed no differences in cancer or cardiovascular but when they enriched for the um, patients that would have met the criteria they didn't have everything they don't have smoking but they had a lot of baseline characteristics from an administrative database when they matched there was no statistical difference but numerically the numbers were actually pretty close to what was found in the oral surveillance so when you do that when you when you enrich your cohort whether it's a registry whether it's administrative claims data whether it's people all in your hospital and and you have this cohort and then you enrich it for high risk over age 50 or even higher in age with a cardiovascular risk factor and the more you throw in yeah you're going to change the numbers of adverse events seen because it's a higher risk population the question is are they seeing the same thing as was seen in oral surveillance and is that um, a valid comparison. Do you think that these are valid comparisons when they're, these are retrospective, reenacted data sets meant to conform and they come up with a different message? Well, first of all, I am an epidemiologist, so I publish or perish. Right. So I would, I would do these sorts of studies, but that doesn't mean um, that the order of evidence, the order of evidence would be First, a well-conducted randomized control trial where you're actually collecting the events very carefully and you should have even confounders in both groups. So what we know, the known confounders, but also the unknown ones. They didn't collect like fully in oral surveillance, the amount of smoking, how many pack years, when did you stop, if you had stopped. So that could be kind of confounded, right? But that should be uh, by randomization equal in the three groups that were right. oral surveillance. Right. So I think once you do these studies that you're saying one be or apology studies or what you're going to call them they really aren't the same there there still can be channeling bias i might not prescribe in this high-risk person because i knew the trial was going on if we think oral surveillance has been going on for several years before it was published right an event-driven study so maybe you would subconsciously or consciously not prescribe perhaps a jack in certain individuals. However, I don't think we're that savvy sometimes. I think really um, when you're looking for a needle in a haystack, because these are rare events, when you're looking for them, you probably need large high-risk numbers for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So the rabbit registry that's being presented, very reassuring. Uh, there's really no differences statistically, propensity scoring, matching, all that kind of good jazz. Uh, they're not finding it. On the other hand, and what do I believe? I still think a randomized controlled trial has more weight in my mind than these other studies, but I think the bottom line is these are uncommon events. Most patients, even at high risk, aren't going to get them. The highest risk of a cardiovascular event is having had one. Then it's a whole bunch of stacking the cardiovascular risks together as opposed to a 55-year-old non-smoker who has mild hypertension. That's not really a high-risk patient in my mind. You know, you said something today at, uh, at a session that you were chairing that I thought was brilliant, and I don't know the audience caught it. And the idea is that when you do these kinds of analyses, especially when retrospective and data manipulation 
is it proof of principle or is it hypothesis generating was exactly what you said and I remember the first time I heard that was back in the Cox 2 um, hearings three-day hearings at the FDA and uh, three days of data about uh, you know all the three Cox inhibitors uh, Milton Packer another well-known epidemiologist in the cardiology world got up and said registry data is sometimes the best you can do but the best it is is hypothesis generating it is never proof of principle and that's really true with these efforts that are done to um, again to sort of test the waters see what's what they're what they're finding uh, but it really isn't proof and yeah if they someone wants to refute the oral surveillance study they're going to have to spend the money find the 5,000 patients follow them for four years and then do all the analyses and face the heat Right, and that's not going to happen. However, we will get data from the baricitinib study, and although they're enriched for VTE, VTE is overlapping in risk, not fully, of cardiovascular risk. So we might get answers, but I have a feeling it will be inconclusive because it's not powered to do that. On the other hand, again, as an epidemiologist, we look at the strength of the data. So if you have an outlier and a whole bunch of things that aren't outliers, you have to say, well, maybe the risk is really true, but the magnitude of the risk is it has not been reproduced so maybe it's really even rarer than we think bad luck or you have to say you, you believe the order of the best data are RCT or meta-analyses of RCTs the next be better data are cohorts prospectively collected then it's administrative databases case control case series so for the audience um Remind them what the baricitinib study that you alluded to is right. going to do? Right. So uh, FDA mandated, uh, Lily is doing a baricitinib RCT. So it's baricitinib compared to a TNF inhibitor. And they're looking, they had to have high-risk VTE, and I'm not sure of all the inclusion criteria, and it's event-driven. So to really say over time, are thrombotic events more prevalent in one group the other? And it would be as well a non-inferiority. Right. So the rates have to be within a confidence interval to be considered about the same. So what I learned in this discussion is that if you're going to talk to an epidemiologist, you better know about the trial design and the strength of evidence. Absolutely. Tune in for more videos at Room Now. Thank you. Hi, Room Now. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate with Dr. Catherine Bakewell, who's one of my mentors. Um, from Utah. We are at ACR 2023 in San Diego and I have the distinct pleasure of talking to Dr. Bakewell about something we really love which is treatment options for patients in spondyloarthritis and specifically what have you learned during this ACR 2023? First, thank you so much for having me. It has been a really exciting meeting and it's my privilege to get to talk about one of my favorite topics. So I'm going to tell you about four different abstracts and then something that I think will be fun to watch as it unfolds. First, there was an abstract. This is number 0520. This was Sophia Ramiro who presented an abstract on ixekizumab in ankylosing spondylitis. And it was looking at if patients achieved an ASDAS clinically important improvement by week 12 or 24, that they were highly likely to attain either inactive disease or low disease activity by week 52. Now you remember the old story back many years ago with sertilizumab that we said, hey, if you have an improvement by week 12, stick with the product, you're going to continue to see improvement, but if you don't, then go ahead and switch up therapies, right? And so this is a continuation, I think, in that same theme of here with ixekizumab, if you get that clinically important improvement as early as week 12 or week 24, then hang with it because you've got a really good likelihood of being in low disease activity by a year. So I like that. 
Next abstract, Jeff Curtis, this is 0530, looks at upadacitinib and AS, and this is in the whole era of wearable technology. So they cool. put these wearables, step counters, get your steps in people, right, and ankylosing spondylitis. So this was from the Select Axis 2 trial, and they were able to show a 20% improvement in the step counts of patients with AS with upadacitinib treatment relative to placebo. What a different kind of outcome, right? Yeah. An objective tracker of patient activity. I love that. So next is an abstract from Martin Rudwallet. So this is 0521. This looked at bimikizumab and the B-Mobile 1 and 2 trials, both radiographic and non-radiographic ACT-SPA, and it was looking at work productivity. And it showed there was a difference in presenteeism. Don't you love that word? <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me a little bit more about presenteeism. So what does that mean to you? This is something we are guilty of in medicine, right? Yes. It's showing up. It's not absenteeism. It's showing up at work but not doing your best. You exactly. show up when you're ill, when you're not able to give it 100% um, or anywhere near 100% for that matter. So, so they showed a difference <laughs> in presenteeism, work productivity, and activity impairment for patients treated with bimikizumab relative to placebo at week 16 with further improvements by week 52. So awesome. here patients are really truly functioning better uh, and showing up at work feeling their best. That makes a big difference. So next is gonna be abstract 0529. This is Sabine Kugler. And I just wanted to say, I do believe there is a growing interest and emphasis as there should be on sex and gender differences in response to therapy. Yes. So this looked at secukinumab in patients with active axial spinal arthritis, and this was from the ACULA study. So this is 621 patients from a German cohort, and they used machine learning to cluster the patients by baseline characteristics and then response to secukinumab at a year. They found the men had higher CRP, the women tended to have higher ASAS health index, ASAS HI scores. But by a year with secukinumab, those differences had resolved. And so here, at least there's one study that shows an equal response by gender. But I think the definitive trial on this is yet to come. And this is what I will leave you with. This is the SAGE trial. So this is run out of Grappa uh, with Leahy Ader at the helm. And they had 121 different applicants. Okay. To be a part of the study, they selected 36 different sites. And it is a prospective study, so they're enrolling patients with psoriatic arthritis, looking at the sex and gender differences in response to therapy. So far for the patients enrolled, about half of them are on a TNF inhibitor, a quarter on a 17, maybe 20% on a jack, about 8.5% on a 23. And follow this over time. We're going to see how the different genders respond, and they're going to hopefully give us some insight into how much of this is related to inflammation, sex hormones, social support, network, that kind of thing. So I think that's going to be really exciting to see what that shows us. Well, I hope we get a, a cut on that next year, too. I mean, AI and and wearables, right? We all wear wearables at this point. It's true. So why, why can't we be using it <laughs> to further what we do, right? We're all attached to our phones, so this is good. I'm going to be interested to see what happens with this age trial as well so hopefully we'll have a new um new more new and more information on that next year I so like now me too thank you of course thank you <laughs> no dr bakewell thank you um and check out roomnow.com for this and additional updates from acr 2023 hello everyone my name is yus yusuf i'm from leeds I'm reporting for Room Now uh, at this uh, 2023 ACR in uh, sunny San Diego, California. 
As we all know uh, that the use of uh, JAK inhibitors has been associated with increased risk of thromboembolism uh, from the oral surveillance data. Therefore, there is uh, uh, a need for us to understand the immunopathogenesis behind this. Uh, today, we will discuss about uh, an abstract number 1676. Uh, just to let you know that this abstract has been awarded uh, as an uh, emerging uh, excellence investigator award to Dr. Paula David, David who unfortunately could not be here today. Uh, and uh, she was working with uh, Professor Dennis McGonagall, who is the senior author who is available to be interviewed today. Hi, Dennis. Hi, yes, hi. Uh, it's nice to be in sunny San Diego from Leeds. Yeah. 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 So, so we work together, and, and Dennis is from Leeds as well. Um, so, would you like to tell us about uh, the background of the study and what motivated you yes. to look into yeah. this topic? So, uh, as we all know, jack inhibition has been linked to thrombosis, and the mechanisms are poorly understood. And with us working on respiratory wards during the COVID pandemic, we become aware of this phenomenon of, of immunothrombosis or immune-driven thrombosis. So um, I sent Paula to work with Robert Arians, who is a specialist coagulation laboratory in Leeds, uh, to explore the idea that uh, jack inhibition uh, may in some way increase immune-driven thrombosis. So what uh, Paula did was she got blood samples from rheumatoid arthritis, inactive and active, and also control samples. And um, she extracted the mononuclear cell fraction from these, and then uh, she activated them in the laboratory um, with lipopolysaccharide and also other uh, toll receptor agonists like poly-IC. And then she collected the, the supernatants from these cells and uh, subsequently added them to a normal plasma to see if that accelerated clot formation. And that is called a turbidity assay. She also added the supernatants from the rheumatoid and control cells to whole blood in an assay called thromboelastography to look at clot formation in whole blood and not just plasma and the whole blood also including platelets. Um, so what they, uh, so the key, the key experiment was when we added um, uh, tofacitinib to lipopolysaccharide stimulated macrophages, we found that uh, the lipopolysaccharide uh, increased the rate of cl clot formation but the addition of tofacitinib actually increased it even more. Um, uh, so we then uh, did the thromboelastography and we similarly saw that the whole blood clotting was in no way diminished uh, with the addition of a JAK inhibitor to the lipopolysaccharide or a surrogate for infection-driven uh, thrombosis. Um, so to explore that further, we then did bulk RNA sequencing and we saw that many genes were upregulated and downregulated differentially when tofacitinib was added to LPS compared to LPS alone. And some inflammatory genes, including those related to IL-12, went up. And uh, anti-inflammatory gene expression in macrophages, including protein S, which rheumatologists will have heard of protein S and C, mm -hmm. that actually went down significantly. So there's a, a myriad of potential mechanisms. So the obvious question then is, 
all of this work was done with tofacitinib. So then we did the same experiments with uh, uh, Jack 2, Jack 1, Jack 2, Jack 3, Pan Jack inhibitors. And we saw that most of the Jack inhibitors, but not all, had this uh, effect. So to summarize, uh, our work, Paula's work, she basically uh, stumbled across a hitherto unappreciated mechanism whereby in certain circumstances, the presence particularly of bacterial uh, cell wall products, but not, not toll 3 agonist, it was linked to the bacterial uh, cell wall product. In certain circumstances, this could increase uh, thrombosis, uh, potentially in both the arterial and venous trees in vivo. Uh, so more work to be done, of course. Yeah, and, and this is really interesting finding. And you also look into like, the whole, you know, in a pan of Jack, and to see the you know, association with the thrombosis. So um, when you say uh, so, potentially they, this could be triggered by you know, bacterial infection. Yes, yes. So you know, in terms of our for clinical practice, do you think what should we do to um, and employ trying to prevent you know the thrombotic yeah. de uh, development from Jack use? Yeah. So we I didn't say, but in, in active RA compared to remission RA the uh, clot formation was faster. So uh, controlling rheumatoid well may uh, diminish the uh, risk of this immunothrombosis. So maybe low dose steroids simultaneously. Mm. Nobody li likes in the current era likes to mm. mention the word steroids. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the other thing about infection is we believe that this phenomenon in vivo, what happens is we likely aspirate bacteria into a respiratory tract. We're slightly immunosuppressed by the jack overall. Uh, but then when the, the, the jack inhibition in conjunction with bacteria in the, in the, in the, in the alveolar network may trigger uh, this clotting, which will trigger then a little bit of pleurisy uh, and uh, this may trigger secondary vascular thrombosis. So it gives a pulmonary artery thrombosis in situ rather than embolization from the deep veins. So yeah. it, it just gives us a general different view. For example, antiphospholipid syndrome, we now know this is a distinct pathogenesis. Mm. So we could probably give a, an antiphospholipid patient a jack if we had to. Mm. So it's just that we, I think we've stumbled upon a mechanism in conjunction with our excellent uh, Okay. Uh, coagulation laboratory uh, uh, collaborators who, who obviously deserve all the credit. Yeah. So just lastly, just before we wrap up, so just through trying to give in terms of clinical context, so if a patient who are on jack inhibitors and were admitted you know, because of like, pneumonia yes. or something like that, would you then say that we should really pay attention in terms of trying to give them anticoagulation in the, you know, during the hospitalization to prevent from thrombosis? Uh, yeah, so th that's that's a good question, and uh, you've just put it on the radar. Mm. Uh, so we need to we need to now start thinking like this mm. if people uh, with a pneumonia are at, at, at risk of this. But it is important to point out that people with uh, viral pneumonia, including influenza, not just COVID, and bacterial pneumonia, do naturally get immunothrombosis mm. to block the uh, avenues of exit of the bacteria mm. and prevent bacteremia. So it is a f immunothrombosis is a physiological phenomenon, uh, mm. so that may not be a big issue, but yeah. it's very interesting.
Oh, so we are so glad uh, having you, Dennis, here uh, with, with Room Now, and thank you so much for summarizing your work beautifully you know, for us. Thanks, yes, for asking me, and there's no bias that you chose a fellow Leeds person, <laughs> I hope. That's good. Yeah. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for listening to our interview. I hope you find it uh, useful and informative. Uh, so you can follow Room Now uh, through various social media outlets, YouTube, Twitter, and etc. for more contents of ACR23 coverage. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Hi, it's David Liu here, reporting from San Diego. We're back for ATR Conversions 2023. Room now is here covering a whole lot of different things. We've got a lot of jack inhibitor coverage as well. And I want to tell you a little bit about a really interesting post I saw, posted 0429, which it takes data from the Select Compare study. So that's a study which compared upadacitinib to adalimumab, the clinical trial. They've done a post hoc analysis of this and I think it's really interesting because it tells us there's a, some, some hints from this, but then I wonder what this means going forward. It looks at pain, and we all struggle with pain in our rheumatoid arthritis patients. We all don't know what to do when we've got rid of inflammation and there's still pain there. I think it's the kind of thing that keeps us up at night in terms of what this means for our patients. That's when our patients don't work, walk away as satisfied as they could be. This study looks specifically at comparing adalimumab to upadacitinib and does some fancy mediation analysis to try and understand what contributions come directly from uh, pain improvement from the, the medicine itself versus pain improvement that comes through improving inflammation. So trying to look at surrogates from inflammation, things like ESR, trying to look at the, the swollen joint counts, comparing those to the other effects that might not be accounted for that. And so using a bit of this fancy cute analysis, we can try and see how much of the pain improvement might be from the drug itself versus from inflammation improvements. What this shows is actually upadacitinib implies that upadacitinib has a direct effect on reducing pain compared to adalimumab. And I think that's really interesting if that's the case. So this is potentially something which is an enormous selling point. If we can say, well, JAK inhibitors, JAK1 inhibitor like upadacitinib has benefits beyond the inflammation, then that's something we might think about. Now, it feels like we've heard this before, because we have. We've seen data about baricitinib implying the same kind of thing. We've seen in psoriatic arthritis, we've seen um, data from gaselcomab implying the same kind of thing. But we can only take these implications so far. How, what is this meant to mean for us? Because I think we look at this data and think, well, maybe that patient with a more fibromyalgic outlook on their rheumatoid arthritis, maybe that's the kind of patient I might want to use upadacitinib for versus a TNF inhibitor. Now, I think that's a slightly harder thing, post-oral surveillance, but we're trying to find the patients who will benefit from upadacitinib. Maybe those are the ones who, who might. If those are the patients that are going to benefit, let's see clinical trials in that. And maybe that's just me being unrealistic, but what I would love to see are rheumatoid arthritis patients with a fibromyalgic overlay, type of patients who might not necessarily ordinarily get into clinical trials, see those patients and give them UPA versus adalimumab, and let's see whether UPA outperforms, especially on that pain, and leads to real improvements in the fibromyalgia that overlies rheumatoid arthritis. For plenty more on JAK inhibitors, rheumatoid arthritis and plenty more, go down to roomnow.com. You know what to do.